Welcome to the Trauma Podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. David Feliciano, Professor of Surgery at the University of Maryland, editor of our industry textbook in trauma, and just an all-around great guy. How are you doing doctor, today, Dr. Feliciano? I'm doing well, Joe. So I cornered you today to talk a little bit about pancreatic trauma. And I have a series of, of a couple of questions. Just informally, I hope you can help us kind of figure out. So my first question is, I'm in the operating room, I'm exploring an abdomen. When should I be concerned about pancreatic ductal injury, and how should I go about evaluating it? Pretty much anything that involves like the mid-body of the pancreas. So if a gunshot wound's in the middle of the pancreas or there's a major crack, common sense would tell you you probably have a transection of the duct. The other real two tip-offs, though, that have been very helpful are if you see a lot of fat necrosis in the lesser sac, even within, you know, 30 or 45 minutes of the original trauma. And then finally, uh, any evidence of clear fluid coming from the area of the crack. In order to see the clear fluid, you may have to wait about five minutes and just use your loops and just observe once you've cleared up any bleeding last comment I'll make, if you're really unsure, we don't do intraoperative uh, ERCP or distal pancreatectomies and pancreatograms anymore, but you can actually have anesthesia, give some fentanyl, and then just inject some methylene blue down the common bile duct, and it'll probably retrograde uh, back into the pancreatic duct, and if you see a blue dye leak, then you know you've got a ductal transection. Now, I know some people have talked about, uh, you know, you're, you just described accessing the common duct and giving dye down that way. What about using the gallbladder if it exists for that purpose? Uh, you certainly can. I mean, the, the advantage of the common duct is that you don't have to inject very much dye. If you use a cholecystogram, then, you know, you're going to probably have to put a clamp across the lower part of the gallbladder so all your dye doesn't go up rather it should go down then but either is fine I, I even though people worry about sticking common bile duct uh, it's no bigger than a cholangiogram needle and it should be safe okay so we've got that evaluated now let me ask you a question more generally about pancreatic injuries when should i drain and if i make the commitment to drain how long how do i decide when to take that drain out and what investigations do i need for organ injury scale grade one and two pancreatic injuries that is those that don't involve the duct there are no good data that draining will change anything post-operatively on occasion a grade two injury not involving the duct may leak a bit but that kind of fluid collection ought to be amenable to uh, percutaneous drainage if necessary anything like a grade three or four should be drained for approximately five to seven days and i think you shouldn't pull the drain in one cell swoop it should be shortened over a couple of days and any time during that period when you start to see, you know, the dark fluid suggestive of the fistula, then you just leave the drain in place. Most fistulas are going to occur within about a week's occasional fistula will occur after that. Great stuff. So now let's move to a little bit further down the spectrum. Now we've got something that clearly needs resection. I, I see the distal or mid portion of the pancreas that needs resection. How much can I remove without clinical consequence? And what 
would I do? What would you utilize to resect that? Is it stapled or uh, sharp di- uh, resection with that with an oversew? What's what's your tips for success? The uh, data. I'll answer the second question first. The, the data on how you close the pancreas in trauma, whether it's a vertical mattress sutures, <laughs> oversewing the distal end, or stapler. Basically, is the leak rate's the same with all three, just as it is in elective surgery. So, if you have a thin, reasonably soft pancreas, the stapler's fine. If you have a pancreas that's a little thicker and you're uncomfortable using it, the stapler, then you go ahead and use the sutures. The, the bad news is, if you really look at amylase and drain fluid postoperatively, there's at least a 25 to 30 percent leak rate in both elective distal pancreatectomies and in trauma pancreatectomies. Much of that, of course, is subclinical, meaning there's some fluid that leaks but doesn't do anything. In terms of removing the pancreas, if, if you take out the pancreas because of a transection over the uh, SMV and portal vein, you're probably removing 75 to 80% in some patients. And there's very little data long-term, but I can tell you there's one series from way back in 85 from Parkland Hospital in Dallas where 11 patients had an 80% pancreatectomy. Three of them on long-term follow-up got diabetes and three got an elevated glucose and a glucose tolerance test that was abnormal. So anytime I do a distal pancreatectomy, I tell my patients, I don't want you to drink alcohol ever again because you have much less insulin and much less uh, exocrine secretions. And if you get pancreatitis, it could really hurt you. And I just tell people that they need to keep in mind that they've lost a lot of their, their cell mass. Yeah, great stuff, great stuff. Well, now let's talk about friendly fire organs. Uh, often with pancreatic uh, um, injury, the spleen is either compromised or uh, frankly injured needs to be removed. But there are those instances where the pancreas is injured and the spleen as a near neighbor could potentially be salvaged. How aggressive do we need to be to try to preserve the spleen in those settings? It's controversial. My own experience is I've saved one spleen in an adult in 42 years because I'm not a real big advocate of doing this. It's, It's tedious in adults. And the risk of overwhelming post-splenectomy infection in adults is somewhere around a half to one and a half percent. I think in in an ideal circumstance where you just have a pancreatic transection involving the duct, no other injuries, a young, otherwise healthy patient, it's certainly reasonable to do, but it, it adds about 45 minutes to your operation. And again, the long-term gain is, is modest for most patients. I think it's a, it's controversial, as I said, and it's a surgeon's choice. You uh, you talked a little bit about, uh, or you mentioned at least, intraoperative ERCP. Uh, let's talk about ERCP and kind of pancreatic common duct stent placement in general. Um, what When is ERCP required in pancreatic injury? When do you utilize it in the context of the care of these patients? If, if you have a original CT that doesn't demonstrate a clear-cut ductal transection, 
but your amylase continues to rise over the next, let's say, 48 hours or so, that would be the kind of patient, if you're still unsure on repeat CT, you get an ERCP. It's very acceptable to stent an adult pancreatic duct near the duodenum. So if you have an experienced endoscopist who uses pancreatic stents for pancreatitis strictures and things like that, it's acceptable, but you need to have the local expertise. Uh, they've been doing this for 15 or 20 years, so it's not a mystery. As you get out further, it gets harder to you know, place the stent in the appropriate place and guarantee it'll stay there. And some of those patients are obviously going to come to distal pancreatectomy. But stenting is acceptable for a proximal injury and also for a post-op pancreatic fistula that just won't resolve, much as if you have a leak from the bile duct after the laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Take care of the sphincter, put a stent in, and most of those fistulas are going to disappear. Okay. What about post-operative management now? So we're kind of in the post-operative phase, and this can be complicated because pancreatic injuries are often not isolated uh, events. But in the case of an isolated pancreatic resection that's required, when do we feed those patients? What are the things we need to think about when we're trying to reinstitute a normal diet? I think if you've done a major pancreatic resection, like a, a distal, a subtotal, or at the other end, the Whipple, it's appropriate to pass some kind of feeding tube beyond your pancreas. And uh, you can use things as small as a nasojejunal mine French tube, which we used to use at Grady frequently, and just put in elemental feeds, or you can put in a regular feeding tube. I don't stimulate the pancreas much until I know they don't have a major fistula post-op. I don't know that there's any data that feeding the patient early changes your fistula rate, but intuitively it makes sense to keep those people NPO. And if you're going to keep somebody NPO for five or seven days, and let's say they've had other injuries, probably ought to be feeding them beyond the pancreas and at the end of that first week. Okay. Great. What other tips and that we have not touched on about um, the management of pancreatic trauma do you think that the folks out there need to know who are going to be taking care of these patients? I think the biggest one is <clears throat> there are a lot of surgeons who don't do much elective pancreatic work. And when they encounter a large central hematoma in the abdomen and it's not from a vascular injury and they see all this contusion around the pancreas, they tend to not want to open that thin epithelial capsule, and it's a mistake. Any hematoma in the pancreas should be opened. It's unlikely to be a vascular injury if it's you know not a big pulsatile thing or growing in front of your eyes, but underneath those hematomas, I have pictures of several patients where the pancreas was completely transected, so much like hematomas in other areas of the abdomen after trauma, you need to open it and find out why there's a hematoma there. Okay, fantastic. Got to explore those things. What One additional question that comes to mind that's often a, ch a challenging clinical entity, what about the post-traumatic pancreatic pseudocyst? What are your, what's your approach to that? Do you, how do you deal with those? They're incredibly rare. Uh, more likely, they're post-traumatic peripancreatic fluid collection similar to what you see after pancreatitis 
if the patient is not septic, you can leave it and see if it'll gradually resorb over time the way many of these do after pancreatitis. I've had maybe one pseudocyst in 40 years where I had to have, I did percutaneous drainage rather than a reoperation based on the patient's overall age and stuff. So you can watch things and if they don't have a thick wall and the patient's not septic and the patient's doing well clinically, I think it's reasonable to see what happens. If there's a clear-cut thick wall, then you just need to make a decision. Do I want to re-op and do a cystogastrostomy, or do I want to try a, a percutaneous drainage? Very rare. Fortunately, very rare. Well, Dr. Feliciano, we want to thank you for your time. We, we now come to the uh, portion of our podcast, what we call our random questions. And this is to help our listening audience get to know David Feliciano, the man, and not Professor Feliciano, the surgical icon that I get the chance to work with every day. So are you ready for your random questions? I guess so. What is better, power boating or sailing? Power boating by far. Why? The sense of speed, uh, freedom, excitement, adrenaline, it's, it mimics being doing a good operation. Fair enough. Is a hot dog a sandwich, and why? Absolutely not. An American hot dog is a hot dog in its own bun. No, no mystery there. It is a piece of meat between two pieces of bread. Yes, but it's still a hot dog. Fair enough. Fair enough. You can't mess with an American institution, can you, sir? I don't think so. So, Einstein famously had the most one of the most brilliant men in the history of the world. Uh, famously had challenges tying his own shoelaces. What are you freakishly bad at? A lot of things on the present day computer. Like, give me, give us an example. Uh, for me to uh, send an article to somebody, I have a little three by five card that outlines all the steps. If I want to prepare a lecture, I have a bigger card with all the steps. My wife has to write all these things out for me. Yeah, I, I have uh, been on the receiving end of some of your edits for some very nice papers we've worked on together, and it is a lot of red ink uh, and a piece of paper slid under my door. So, but it works. You've done. You've certainly got a track record with utilizing it. So don't uh, fix what ain't broke. I suppose. What actor would play you in a movie about your life? Uh, Robert Redford when he was young. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. Any specific time frame, uh, movie wise, for that? Uh, what are you thinking, Jake Johnson or huh? His age or my yeah, age? His age. Forty. Forty. Fair enough. Fair enough. Good sir. Well, Doctor Feliciano, I, it's always a pleasure. I have the benefit of walking down the hallway and sitting in your office and having these great conversations. But thank you so much for sharing with our podcasting audience some of these answers, and we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Joe. Goodbye. This has been another episode of The Trauma Podcast. Thanks again to our special guest this episode, Dr. David Feliciano. And on behalf of myself and my partner in crime, Rishi Kundi, thanks for listening and be sure to check out our other offerings.